Thank you for joining us for another episode of In the Pursuit of. This season's pursuit is Blackness and the exploration of Black identity across the globe. Today we have the amazing fortune of having Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs joining us. Tabitha is one of the women who spearheaded the organization of the Women's March on Washington on January 21st, 2017, helping organize the largest demonstration in response to an election in U.S. history. She currently serves as the Deputy Executive Director of Program at Women's March. She's the co-founder of Youth Empower, the youth arm of Women's March. Tabitha has led and been an adult ally to several youth initiatives through her work with Youth Empower, including the historic National School Walkout. She was one of Glamour Women of the Year in 2017 and was also honored as one of 200 women who will change the way you see the world. Currently, Tabitha is a leading voice on parenting anti-racist children and writes often about raising multiracial children in today's America. Thank you so much for joining us, Tabitha. We feel really lucky and fortunate to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. (laughs) So, Tabitha, that was quite a mouthful, and it seems you (laughs) have been doing a lot of really amazing work in so many different areas, and so we're happy to just have you, you know, chat with us. We wanted to just start with you just telling us a little bit about who you are, what you identify as, and, and as you know, we're exploring the idea of Blackness and Black identity across the globe because we're really looking into the 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 idea that although we may have the like one identity of a Black identity, we want to explore a lot of the nuances around that. And so many of our guests are going to be exploring the nuances of what that means to them. In your case, as you're telling us about who you are, who you identify as, can you also tell us what does blackness mean to you? What does that word mean to you? And were you aware of this distinction of blackness when you were growing up? Well, I grew up in Trinidad, which is um, a tiny, a really tiny island in the Caribbean. And um, my mom is of East Indian descent and my dad is black. And um we there's an identity in Trinidad called Dogla, which I've since learned can actually be an offensive term. But just to be honest, that's how I grew up. That was my identity, um, a mix of both cultures. And uh, I, I sort of came into my own as a Black woman when I came to this country when I was 19 years old and really started examining what Blackness meant to me um, in this country where there are different implications. It's a country that's very much built upon white supremacy and where whiteness is almost the air we breathe and is seen as the norm in so so many different industries and cultures and so forth. So I, I started sort of deeply examining what blackness meant to me as a woman when I came to this country. And then when my son was born in 2014, I kind of had a reckoning within myself of what it means to be a black woman. My son um, he's half Jewish, half black. And he, when he was born, I mean, he still is like this. He, um, his skin is very light skin and he, in some spaces he can pass as white. And this was sort of a really difficult experience 
for me to go through when he was born, it was kind of very jarring because people often would take me for the babysitter. Um, we lived in New York City at the time and we would take the train and people would treat me like I wasn't even his mother. Um, and it took a while for me when he was a baby to really come into my own and really own that my blackness is defined by what I want it to be, not necessarily what this American society defines it to be. And that I could raise a child who identifies as black and who has skin as light as his own. So that was really a reckoning moment for me. And that sort of spurred me into started starting to write about what it means to raise to raise multiracial children in this country. So now I I I still identify as half black, half Indian. Um, and uh, our home is Jewish. We're raising the kids Jewish. My partner's Jewish. Um, but, uh, but I know that there's a lot of traditions in, in the Jewish culture that have become a part of my life. We celebrate all the holidays. We cook a lot of the food. We're very close to my partner's side of the family. So, um, I'm sort of, uh, Jewish aligned. If, if that is a phrase, I think I just made that up. But um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm sort of Jewish aligned because I grew up as a Christian, but the traditions and the beliefs of of um, of really Judaism is something that I deeply identify with. So that's kind of my identity now. We're raising the kids to know every part of who they are. So we celebrate Diwali, which is an Indian festival. We celebrate Christmas, which is a Christian which is a Christian holiday. And we, of course, celebrate all the Jewish holidays. So it's really important to my partner and I that we uh, raise the kids knowing very deeply every part of their identity and really educating them around what that means and how how they should show up in this world as multiracial children who are really honestly living with a lot of privilege right now because of the color of their skin. And that's something that's also been super difficult for me because I have a certain identity that I feel like I've always wanted to sort of share with my kids and having to realize that the the, the way that they're going to show up in this world is going to be very different from how I move within this world. So I know you asked, what does blackness mean to me? For me, blackness is really a state of being. It defines my perspective in life. And I'm really honored to be black. I think it's a truly beautiful existence in spite of everything, in spite of the country I live in, in spite of all that we see around us. I think black people are so gifted and are just filled with so much, so much essence and beauty. And we have so much to offer to this world and the way that we've been able to push past all these different obstacles that this world, this country has put forth to block us from being our true selves to from, from really actualizing. And we've been able to push past all of that and still achieve so much and be, be such incredible examples of power. I think that just speaks to the beauty of blackness. So I'm pretty honored to be black living in this country. I have sort of the identity of being African-American. I know that in certain spaces, that's who I am, but the way that I show up in this country specifically, I identify more as a Trinidadian American, but I know that in certain spaces, I mean, this country so much loves to put people in like neat little boxes and make assumptions based on those boxes. So I know that in certain spaces, I'm assumed to be African American. And with that comes a whole lot of other things. So 
Absolutely. You made so many good points there. And we've spoken one of our previous podcasts uh, about that, the idea that there is definitely a transition that happens when you've moved from outside of the U.S. to inside of the U.S. There's almost a sort of demand for you to step into your box and very neatly assume all of the contents therein. So there are a couple of questions I want to ask just that are coming out from, from what you said. The first is that I would love to know when was the first time that you recognized in your move from Trinidad to America? When was the first time that you recognized that you were in a very different space from where you grew up and uh, you were in a space that caused you to take this trajectory? Like what moment did you realize I need to I need to be an activist? I need to be in a space where I'm empowering people in this new land. Like at what point did that happen for you? I mean, I think that I've always been an organizer and the word activist always gives me pause because it's sort of been, um, it's been commodified, it's been misused, it's been, it's become something that's so mainstream. And I think that the, when you look at activists sort of in history and the struggles that they've had to deal with, with the label, it sort of doesn't, doesn't sit right to me to look at where it's at right now. I mean, a good example of it is the um, the Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial. Um, you know that when Pepsi is doing an ad about being, being an activist, you know that we're like not on the right track. Yes. Um, so I sort of identify more as being an organizer. I think that working for Women's March, I do a lot of national digital organizing, but I started organizing actually back in high school in Trinidad. I spent the first couple of years of my high school life going to what was in dispute, what what was disputably one of the best schools in the country um, that really focused a lot on like celebrating black girls and confidence and empowering women and so forth. And I just didn't have that experience. It was a really difficult time for me, even though there were only a few white girls in the school. I felt like white supremacy still played a part because I felt like they could sort of seamlessly exist in the school wherever they wanted. I felt like teachers treated them differently. And I felt like as a poor Black girl going to that school, I had a really difficult experience. I also had a very abusive upbringing, and that affected my grades, that affected how I showed up as a teenager in school, and it just wasn't addressed in that school. So when I had the option to shift schools, I shifted to school that had a really rough reputation and it was a school that was closer to my home and that's where I really started organizing a group of students and I we started a school newspaper and you know it was it was a stark difference for me in terms of seeing how students in that school perceived themselves as like not having a lot of potential not really you know being really believed in by by the country by by adults and we started really just organizing and helping people realize, you know, helping our fellow students realize that we had so much to offer and we we were driven and we were ambitious and we really needed to, to demand that everybody sort of helped us in our pursuit of excellence. So that's where my organizing really started. You know, we started a school newspaper. We got involved with a local pageant. And then when I went to St. Francis College, you and I went to St. Francis together. So, so you know about this. Mm-hmm. I started the Fine Arts Society of St. Francis College, again, organizing 
artists to to take up space and to make space in a school where there there was no art program at the time. So even though my pub my my organizing really started getting into sort of public consciousness because of the women's march, I I when I think about when I started organizing, when I started really supporting people and realizing their power and stepping into their voices and demanding space was really way back in high school. And in Trinidad, that was not something that was embraced or celebrated many times in the culture. But I've always been someone who I've been super focused on what I know is demanded of the moment, what what I know is my identity. And, um, and I really am grateful to the school that I went to, to the high school that I went to. When we started that organizing, making space for our voices and really listening and really celebrating the fact that students were getting involved. So, yeah, so that's when I started really organizing. And then when I came to this country, it came into the public space during Women's March. And that's when I started delving really deep into what it means to be a Black woman in a public space, the responsibility of my voice you know, the example I'm setting for young Black women, Black children all over the country that were looking to Women's March and and really wanting to take part in the movement, but wanting to see themselves reflected in, in the leaders as well. Wow. You know, as I listen to you, I think uh, that you were very fortunate in quite a few ways in terms of being able to recognize that at such an early age being able to have that opportunity to move from one school to another and sort of develop that organizing sensibility. Because as you spoke about growing up in in Trinidad, in the Caribbean, and what's expected of you is, you know, we have a lot of very post-colonial things that we're still struggling with. And at the top of that list, I would be saying is that notion that we really, you know, especially as women should sort of be seen and not heard and yes it's changing a lot but that is really at the root of a lot of um you you don't you don't speak up you don't voice things you don't go against the grain and you're not rewarded for going against the grain because that means you're also stepping out of of the boxes that we've created for you Mm -hmm. and although I think we have similar but different boxes in the Caribbean it's boxes all the same Mm-hmm. And uh, so to be able to develop that sensibility, even in that space, uh, I think is very fortunate. And then to be able to travel to a new space and then continue to develop that 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 sort of advocacy around the work that you're doing around Black identity and giving people space to, to come into who they are. I, I think it's it's really fortunate because I think many of us, myself included, I, I spoke previously about, you know, really growing up in a bubble. Mm-hmm. And liking the, the bubble, the bubble, I think the bubble was necessary for me right. <laughs> because the world outside the bubble, even it, it's sometimes it may sound weird to be like, oh, you're a black person and you mm-hmm. grew up in a bubble. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think we are sort of you don't know that you're being soul things just just by just growing up. You're, you're buying into whatever is uh, the comfortable notion of the day. And it's only when right. you really start to ask the questions yourself and only when you're it's you have to be put into a situation almost of discomfort Mm -hmm. to realize that oh this isn't an anomaly this is the status quo right and so I definitely came to that understanding much much later in life and but I think it was necessary in when it happened for me that is 
So I wanted to go back to you were talking about raising your son and definitely wanting him to understand the idea of blackness and raising him in a multiracial family and with a multiracial identity. So for your son, when he looks in the mirror, he sees himself. Well, I can't speak for him. I can speak my own kids. When they look at themselves, they don't see me. They see closer to their father. So then when you speak of the word blackness, do you ever get any pushback where that is concerned? My explanation to my kids is like, it's, I say black culture so Mm -hmm. that they're better able to understand it. How do you explain that to your son that it's not clearly, it's not color of skin you're talking to him about, uh, but it is an experience. So how do you, you know, do you get that pushback from him and how do you go about explaining it? I mean, it's an ongoing process and it changes according to age. I think he was like two years old when he first said to me, like, mom, I'm white. And that was super jarring for me. First of all, I wasn't ready to have a conversation about the nuances of race and skin color with like my toddler. Um, And I started thinking, you know, I asked him, I was like, where did you hear this from? Like, where are you hearing this from? You're not white. Where are you hearing this from? And he was like, I didn't hear it from anywhere. Like, this is just, I'm white, you know? And I had to sort of put myself through a little bit of an education around how to talk to kids about race at different ages. And we, we've changed over time in terms of what we say to him. When we had that conversation with him at the time, we said, you know, your half mom and your half dad, you know, we came together and we made you. So you're part black and you're part white. And then the question came like, so which part of me is white and which part of me is black? Is it my head that's white and my feet are black? <laughs> and, you know, it's just, and just, yes. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable yes, question. It's amazing how they, they're, and, and all they're trying to doing is really trying to understand. They're like, I just need to know how I fit into this family, mom. So just yeah. give me something I can, I can, you Hold know, on think to. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and then we started explaining it like it's like a liquid that you all mix, to, you mix it together and everything gets mixed together in this beautiful new existence that is you, you know? Um, and we, we had to sort of, and over time, the conversation has changed. He still says to us at times, he says, you know, my skin looks more like dad's skin than than your skin. And he'll say, he'll, I, he'll talk about blackness as like, mom, you're black. So um, it's an ongoing conversation for us that we have with him all the time around what it means to be multiracial. And we also try to talk to him about privilege as well, because I think even though he's six years old, he's reaping the benefits of, of whiteness in the spaces that he shows up, maybe not during a pandemic, but like when he's not with his friends at the playground and in school and so forth, he definitely benefits from it. And he, even at six years old, he has a responsibility around how he shows up. So we have conversations with him around those things, of course, of course, applicable to his age, but the way that we most sort of use to start those conversations and to help him sort of come to an understanding around it is through books. We really read to him a lot. We really are very intentional about the books that he has on his bookshelf, making sure that the kids that are featured 
um, have like a variety of skin tones that they're not just white, making sure that it's not just books that actually feature black kids that don't just focused on focus on protesting and so forth, but also speak to black joy and black celebration and black kids just existing, being themselves, being, being nuanced and happy and dealing with life as kids. And through my column, I also write a column called Raising Anti-Racist Kids with Romper. And through that column, um, I also did a gift guide at the end of last year for last Christmas, where, you know, there's like a long list of places where people can buy black dolls and black toys and black STEM items. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like there's like all these toys about like science and learning, but centered around blackness. There's like this monthly box that you can get where kids can learn about black identity and black history and so forth. So just, just putting that information out there. So black parents can sort of know that you don't always have to walk up to your kid and say, let's talk about race. Let's talk about racism. There are all these different things that you can use to sort of really introduce the conversation and make it applicable to whatever age they're at. I think that when kids get to be a little older and they're experiencing race in schools in ways that they can actually articulate and they see racism around them, I think the conversations may even be a little bit more fluid because then you can be really frank with them about certain things. But at this age, there's like the balance around really teaching him about privilege and racism and race and what that means for him as a six-year-old and for his friends who are white and his friends who are black, but also balancing that, that with like keeping it applicable to his age. Right. Right. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the column that you mentioned, raising anti-racist, uh, raising anti-racist white kids. Yes. It's called raising anti-racist kids. Okay. We have to keep it general. A lot of the, some of it is centered around speaking specifically to white parents, but some of it is also for everybody. For instance, okay. the gift guide that was done at the end of last year was for everybody. Cause I okay. think a lot parents are always looking you know even myself as a black mom I'm, I'm like always looking for you know toys and gifts that aren't centered around whiteness so I think it's okay for everyone so this is great for black and white parents alike I, well I wanted to talk more about it just because uh, I think it's such a great tool and it's such a brave tool like even having that as a column is really going to the heart of what a lot of us are dealing with but we're dealing with personally and to mm -hmm. bring it into the community sphere I think mm -hmm. is such a good idea because uh, recently I was speaking to one of my mom friends uh, who is white and uh, she was saying that you know sometimes it's difficult to know when to speak to your kids or it's a difficult conversation to have with your kids when you talk about racism because mm -hmm. you don't want the kid to somehow feel like they are the cause or they belong to this culture that is, you know, just a, a bad culture. And so she was like, she would often, you know, put off the conversation or, you know, be reticent to have those conversations. What advice mm -hmm. would you be able to give to them in that way as they sort of approach their, their kids with, with, with these types of conversations? I mean, it's important for white parents to really sit with the fact that 
that in in and of itself is a privilege the ability to choose to not have these conversations with your kids is a privilege the ability to delay it until you find the right timing is a privilege because for a lot of black and brown parents it's literally a matter of safety you literally need to have these conversations with your kids to protect them because we live in a society where blackness is criminalized. When you look at the statistics around how black kids are treated in schools, the the numbers around black kids who are suspended or punished in schools compared to the numbers around white kids is really stuck. When you look at the messaging that black children, black and brown children get from society and the media and so forth, I think we're living in a really amazing time of shows like Blackish and mixedish and so forth and and also the neighborhood shows that reflects blackness in a positive way uh, in a way that is celebrated but that hasn't always been the case and it's certainly in the minority the majority of media out there is centered around whiteness so this so these conversations are conversations that black and brown parents have to have with their kids all the time to prepare them for the world that's out there. And we're not even starting to even address the fact that, you know, if you have a black teenager who's learning how to drive, you need to very honestly have a conversation around what to do if they get pulled over by police, what what they need to do to be safe, to, to literally save their lives. It's a matter of life and death for black and brown parents. So I think the first thing I would say to white parents who are considering when to have these conversations is to really just sit with the fact that that in and of itself is a privilege. I think that there's a responsibility to seek out resources that can help make these conversations a little bit more fluid in your household, because it's not just about the kid. It's about are you having anti-racist practices in your home as a whole? You know, I talk in my column a lot about your friends, are all of your friends white? Are all of your children's friends white? The, the churches, the synagogues that, that you go to, you know, looking at the number of white people, the number of people of color that, that actually attend with you, looking at the places that you show up, the neighborhoods you live in. Being anti-racist is not just a conversation to have with your kids. It's a whole mindset that I think white parents have a responsibility to commit to because they live with so much privilege. So I think it's an ongoing process White parents definitely need to commit to that learning themselves. They need to commit to those principles in their own lives so that they can have a trickle off for their kids. And I think it's also completely fine if, you know, you start having these conversations with your kids and they have really difficult questions for you to be honest and be like, I'm learning with you. I don't know the answer to that question. Let me find out. Let me get more information. Definitely don't wait until you have all the information to start these conversations with your kids. Don't don't wait until you're absolutely ready because you're never going, going to be ready. There's never going to be a right time. The the right time is really yesterday. So that would that's just what I would say to white parents who are trying to have these conversations around when is the best time to really have have these conversations with white kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's some good advice. I wanted to move on to your involvement in the Women's March and just to see how has that changed your understanding of, of being Black in the world? How has it changed your understanding or how has it furthered, I guess, your understanding of being Black in the world? 
my involvement with Women's March was around 2016 when after the 2016 election and uh, sort of the first my my first reaction to Women's March when I first found out about it on social media was that it seemed like there were a lot of white people white women that were getting really upset and driven to do something to march on Washington and I had reached out to one of the organizers to see if I can help because I because at that point in time I did notice that it was predominantly white people that were getting really incensed and really motivated to march on Washington and as a black woman I knew that you know when when you look at history when you look at feminism throughout time black women have often been left out of the conversation around feminism around the conversation around gender justice and I knew that that could not happen again that there needed to be an approach to the women's march approach to the work that we were doing that was truly intersectional that was truly grounded in centering and elevating the voices of black women and other women of color and the experience of organizing with women's march has led me to deepen my understanding around black feminism to really look to look to leaders in this space who have been doing this for much longer and to follow their guidance. Um, when we look at what happened over the summer of 2020, there was an incident where there was an organization that was started called Wall of Moms, where there were white moms who were putting their bodies on the line at protest around the country. Whenever protest movements bubble into the public consciousness, I always gut check myself around if it's censoring the voices of people who have been historically marginalized, if it's censoring the voices of black and brown people. So that's something that I've always done. I think that my organizing in Trinidad sort of lent itself to that because Trinidad is a island where it's predominantly black people are predominantly people of color, but that's something that since I came to this country, you know, there's a need to be super intentional about it in this country because so often things gain validity only when white people allow it to gain any sort of validity. So really pushing back against that and really pushing back on that notion that there needs to be white acceptance before something becomes mainstream. Right. One of the final questions or the final question, I think for today, and a lot of what you have said so far, I think is so important. And we spoke a lot about moving the centeredness from white centeredness to black and brown people just because they have been historically marginalized. And I think even for the black community, I, I would say that that's not usually on the forefront of their mind. I think many people believe because they're black, they understand, but in our instance as well, too, for those of us who are Black but who are not learning our history, mm -hmm. then we are also, we we sort of become, we sort of become caught in a cycle because mm -hmm. we're not aware of what is being done to us. So we're sort of mm -hmm. just moving in this cycle over and over again, thinking that it's the first time this is happening or this is an anomaly, not mm -hmm. realizing that there's so much 
there's so much history behind what is happening to you, that what is happening to you is not in a silo and that it's not. And many times you can often think it's your fault that Mm -hmm. that your existence is your fault and that it's somehow tied to the fact that you're black, black culture and and marginalization seem to go so hand in hand that it feels like it, it never existed any other way. Uh, Mm -hmm. unless you're you know digging into that history so the work that you're doing is really important it is calling out a lot of things that both the black and and the white community uh, Mm -hmm. need to be very aware of yeah I mean I did a workshop with some young people I think it was last week or the week before just about like how to start organizing and that was one of the main things that I really stressed is really educating yourself on the history of movements, really educating yourself on the history of social justice so that you can see these patterns play out over time. You know, we see it um, play out over the trajectory of movements. You know, you see it play out over how race shows up. I think we're living in a really profound time where after the process of last summer, we're seeing shifts. We're seeing shifts on corporate levels. We're seeing shifts on really many governmental levels around how they approach race and racism. And uh, you know, during the summer, when people were super excited about these changes, I kept stressing the this is going to this is going to pass. People are going to move this out of the media space. They're going to move this out of the public consciousness space. And we really need to continue to hold corporations and the government accountable for continuing to center black voices and to continue making sure that anti-racism is a key foundational block to everything that people are doing. Because once it moves out of the public consciousness space, it's very easy for people to go back to life as usual, for people of privilege to go back to life as usual and for them to, to think that, okay, the summer of 2020 was a really interesting time, but to not have made these permanent changes, these systemic changes in their lives. So that's one of the reasons I started the column why I reached out to Romper, because I really wanted to make sure that there's ongoing education, there are ongoing conversations around making anti-racism a foundational block in people's lives and in how people show up in every area of their lives. And it's not just when something bubbles into into the public consciousness space. And it's not just when um, there's a tragedy that happens that triggers something emotional inside of us that makes us want to do something, but that we are committing to anti-racist practices, to anti-racist norms in our society, um, to really make the change that we need to see that will really result in like long-term, really long-term impact. Yes. And I think the the organizing that you and the Women's March have been doing and a lot of different community organizations have been doing is essential. And uh, I think in many ways, the pandemic has been a blessing in that way because it really allowed our collective consciousness to be raised, to really see what's happening in front of us. And you Uh mentioned before the idea of uh, it has to be systemic because Mm -hmm. I think so often we are so good as a society uh, to putting band-aids on things. So Mm -hmm. especially as you talk about corporate America, we're so good at changing the face, but not the soul. Right. And changing the soul is, uh, is so important. And what happens when it's not, it's out of, it's out of fashion. Right. So how do you, how do you keep that in fashion so that you're not, you know, 
just taking at face value. So as you said, when this summer goes and you're like, well, didn't we deal with that two summers ago? Aren't we past that? Mm-hmm. And realizing that we can't get past it because it's something that started so long ago. And it's a commitment to being uncomfortable for those who have been comfortable in these spaces. Exactly. Yeah. And I think over the summer of last year, there were all these corporations. I think I found a list of like 200 fashion companies that were making donations and were doing this and doing that. And I was like, this is all well and good. I know that organizations definitely need money. I know that a million dollars makes a really big difference to a grassroots organization. But let's also deeply examine for these corporations, how many black people are on their board. Let's deeply examine um, how many black people are in leadership positions on their staff. How do they feel? What's the culture like for them around how they are treated as black people in the workplace? Are there opportunities for them to succeed and advance and to move up in their companies? Let's talk about pay equity. Let's talk about, you know, the salaries of the black people in in these corporations and really put it in comparison with the white people in these corporations. Let's talk about, you know, for fashion companies, let's talk about the amount of black models they use. And I'm not talking about racially ambiguous people with curly hair and light skin. I'm talking about dark skin models. I'm talking about people who often are marginalized by the fashion industry and have been for so long, really looking deep as to like, who are you hiring for projects? Who are you hiring as contractors? Are these black and brown people? So deeply examining all these cultures and practices within corporations, because while I think that donations are certainly a step in the right direction, you give one donation and that really doesn't change things like systemically within your corporation. So I think all these things are crucially important. You know, as you mentioned, uh, don't you give one donation? I had to um, go back to my ca- my Catholic upbringing because <laughs> it's it's like you've given a donation and you've sort of absolved yourself yes, from, uh-huh. from from the behavior and from the system. Yeah. You're like, I don't really want to change anything, yeah. but mm-hmm. uh, here's here's some chump change. It's almost like almost like That's a buyout. It's like if, <laughs> yeah. if I give you this, will we stop talking about this? Because it's really uncomfortable and it's affecting my my profit yep. margins. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, one final question for you. Do you believe there is hope in turning around the clock with racism and with alienation towards black people in the world? Because sometimes it can feel like such an immovable such it, it feels like there it's been going on for so long. And mm-hmm. there's always a new way of re-injuring and re-alienating the Black community and people of color in general. Do you have hope? I'm hoping that's why you're an organizer in that, <laughs> <laughs> that we can turn this process around. I mean, I think as an organizer, that like radical imagination is the thing that really keeps me going, you know, really imagining the world that I want to live in, the world that I want to raise my kids in and fighting tooth and nail to make that world a reality. I think on a realistic level, everyone, specifically people who benefit from whiteness, have to commit to dismantling it. They have to commit to being anti-racist in every area of their lives and using every little bit of privilege that they hold to force these conversations, to force these changes. I think it's never too late to really start changing from within to making those changes to committing to that education to committing to sitting with the discomfort and moving it out to the systems that everybody contributes to and and have power in wow yeah 
I would like to buy into your hope for the future <laughs> because I'm not always as hopeful. So I, I, we, you know, I personally am very grateful for the work that you're doing. It, it, it encourages all to get to work ourselves and to do our own part in terms of turning the clock around. And it has definitely awoken our consciousness in general, in terms of realizing that there is work to do, that everything is not fine. And, right. and that we need to just move beyond the little that we we're doing and really get our, get our hands dirty, get in there. And really all of our, all of our efforts need to sort of be honed towards this effort of, of making the world a more equitable place and realizing yeah. that the balance of power is, is so inequitable that it is causing harm, both physical mm -hmm. and, and mental in many ways. So exactly. I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Is there any, any additional last words you wanted to say or any, um, I wanted to make sure that people know to go and go straight to your article, raising anti-racist kids in general. Mm -hmm. I know I'll be sharing that as much as I can. Cause I really think that is, um, it's, it's such a helpful tool when you don't know where to turn. I think it's mm -hmm. a, it's a good, it's a good go-to. Are there yeah. any other platforms you'd like to urge people to reach out to if they'd like to get more involved in just doing the work of uh, themselves becoming more anti-racist or becoming more aware of what's happening in our society at large? Yeah, I think folks can follow the column. It comes out every two weeks, Raising Anti-Racist Kids on Rampa.com. Um, and I always end each article with one action that people can do within that week. And it's something that is very realistically doable. So definitely follow that if you're looking for ways to get involved. Um, I really try very hard to provide information that is that is useful to people, that's able to drive people to action, that's able to not not encourage people to stay in a space of shame and embarrassment about where they're at in their anti-racism journey, but to really propel people into action and into wanting to make change, to really be hopeful. Because I think that you know, we, we can't let them steal our joy. We can't let them steal our positivity and the, and the brilliance that we have inside of us and our hope for the future that we know can be a reality. I think it's so important for us to hold on to that and to safeguard that, not, not just within ourselves, but within our children as well. So definitely follow the column. Um, folks can also find me on Instagram. I yell about racism all the time. Some of it, <laughs> some of it not. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that's, and if, if you want to get involved in organizing, work womensmarch.com for more information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tabitha. It has been very educational for me. And uh, I, I'm really grateful that you were able to come on and share this and share this with all of our audience out there. And uh, I hope that... Uh, as a result of this conversation that many people are able to, you know, get in and, and, and start doing the work that we all know is necessary. I was going to say thank you so much for having me. It's been really a joy to be able to join your podcast and to share a little bit about um, my perspective around Blackness. Amen. Thank you, Tabitha. We thank all of you for joining us on In the Pursuit of, and we'll see you next time. Enjoy. Enjoy.
This podcast has been powered by Mars Playhouse, a theater and film company dedicated to increasing the lexicon of Black plays and films emanating from the Caribbean and its diaspora throughout the globe. Thank you for your support in growing this podcast community. Don't forget to hit the like button and follow us on IG, Facebook, and Twitter at Mars Playhouse for details on upcoming podcasts and content surrounding the Caribbean and its diaspora.